Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I want to talk about peak performance. Now, if you follow sports training at all, you'll know that Olympic class athletes are obsessed by sustaining peak performance. It has a specific meaning and something we're going to delve into. But these athletes measure performance, they measure their peak, they monitor it, and they watch all the activities that they engage in from sleep to the food they eat, to the meditation, to the mindfulness training, to the visual imagery, all of it to see how it impacts their peak performance. Because remember for an Olympic class athlete, a small difference is going to make the difference between winning and losing. So what I find fascinating is if we know all this science about peak performance for Olympic athletes, why aren't we using more of it to talk about how to assess and sustain our peak as leaders? And I don't think we talk enough about our teams, particularly in the current moments when everybody is suffering from so much fatigue and stress, there is more we could be doing to improve the peak performance of ourselves and of our teams. I think we can change that, and we're going to have some help from science and methodology to get us there. So my guest today is Andrew McDonald. Andrew comes from investment banking and capital markets for 19 years, and he was managing director at Merrill Lynch until he retired in 2005 and co-founded the Hollywell Partnership Limited, which is an executive coaching and development consultancy. And his focus was to work with senior leaders on high-performance cultures around the world. Now, in the past five years, Andrew has been focused on the physiological aspects of executive leadership performance. And so in 2019, he founded um, a company, I don't even know how to begin to announce, but PQ Limited, let me say that. There's a hyphen and some other stuff around it, but I'll leave that one out. PQ Limited, which is about bringing together the expertise of the Hollywell Partnership the expertise of Lowbrow University, which I've probably messed up, which is the number one world uh, for four successive years in sports science, and some experience from another company whose name I can't pronounce. Andrew, you're going to have to help me with this. At any rate, they is now focused on PQ, which he describes as the third pillar of executive performance in conjunction with IQ and EQ. The website, if you'd like to learn more about the details on this one, is PQ perform.com. Andrew, welcome to the show and please correct my horrible pronunciations of your partners. I feel very, very lucky to be with you, Wanda, and I do apologize for the difficulty of the names. I have a, a Bulgarian colleague who uh, has a very complicated name uh, and the company he runs uh, and Loughborough University it goes alongside Edinburgh and a number of other British names that always trip up our American cousins. So, uh, Absolutely. Let's move on from that. But your description is uh, very comprehensive. And thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to have you here. I'm actually really excited about the methodology you're using, the ways you're using it and the implications it has for leadership. But let me start. You were a banking executive and from everything I can tell, a fairly successful one. So what started you on this journey of coaching? And then how did you get interested in physiology? 
Well, the simple answer is that uh, I enjoyed working with the people who used to work with me and for me, and I became very interested in their performance drivers. And I think you get to a point in a career when you hit the fork in the road. I was coming on 40 and had to decide whether I was going to commit to the next 10, 15 years of investment banking management or whether I was going to try something else. And uh, I'd experienced some executive coaching. Uh, I'd been fascinated by the process. I'd done some lecturing at the Cranfield Business School. Uh, and so I chose to turn right rather than left in my career choice. And so enjoyed, I've enjoyed the privilege of working with some very talented, very high potential executives and trying to support them manage themselves towards their goals. Uh, and I found it very engaging. Great. But the story changed about four or five years ago when you asked okay. about physiology. Yep. Um, when I started to look into elite sports coaching, uh, I specifically was working with uh, a double Olympic medalist called Nick Gillingham, who was a swimming British champion, right. who secured that in the 1980s when Brits didn't win very medals, many medals. <laughs> uh, and I talked to him about what he had had to do to counterbalance an environment where there wasn't an institutional support for excellence. Uh, and it was fascinating to see the lengths that he went to and the detail into which he planned and, and prepared. He's now a coach and an outstanding coach. And I started to look into why isn't that, that level of intensity in detail and support in the executive coaching world? We, we, we do a great deal psycho, with the psychological side, psychometrics, Intellectual capacity is all measured to an into its uh, life, but physiologically not. Um, and so I began a journey of looking to see whether it would be possible to bring what's already been well-established in elite sports science into the executive world. Uh, and from that, uh, I'm talking to you now. Fabulous. So why? What is it that you think? So uh, let me back up for people who don't know what Olympic class athletes or elite athletes is the right word we should say are doing in the physiology. Just walk us through what they look at, why they look at it to uh, bring us up to speed on that sport. Sure. Sports. You know, elite athletes, clearly physiology is the primary determinant of their outcome. If they can't run fast, can't catch a ball, they can't uh, hit a tennis ball, then the rest is really incidental. So they focus excessively relative to an executive on their physiology. But what they're looking at is what uh, is commonly known as the marginal gains, the things that they can do better through practice or focus that they've ne neglected at the moment, which will give them an edge. So that can be changing the balance in the diet. It can be focusing on very specific technical changes. It can be committing to a different pattern of working to deliver a different output, which is measurable. But at the root of it is deep individualization. What elite sport understands is that we all have effectively a physiological footprint, a thumbprint, fingerprint or iris print we, we are we are not the same so if you want to deliver peak performance you have to commit to understanding yourself first and then through that with experts and with empirical evidence build a framework to address your own individual challenges so that's that's what elite athletes do 
All right. And I know a bit about this. I'm fascinated by how much they go through and how much they use the psychological components that we talk about routinely in order to improve their performance. And you're right. It's marginal error. It's tiny, not error, marginal gains, small bits along the way. Okay. So, and it's individual. I like that, that we're not trying to say one size fits all. Everybody's the same. I'm looking for what you, where you need to focus in order to improve your performance. So what kind of metrics do you actually look at that you think are relevant for leaders in general? This is, this is very important. Um, and why it took quite a long time to put PQ together. I'll, I'll just give you a definition of PQ first of all, so you can understand what we're talking about. We define the physiological quotient as a scientifically validated indicator of an individual's executive performance potential as defined by their essential body systems. So it's saying, what is the gap analysis when it's linked to identifiable parameters of physiological identity, right? Right. So the complexity is you can work to an infinitesimal degree of uh, attention by measuring bloods, highly interventionist MRI scans to really understand an individual's body. We don't need that in the executive world. What we need is a proxy for the key functions of the body. And the best proxy that a human being has is their heart, which is the most highly responsive organ to hormonal balance. And our hormonal balance is driven by our autonomics nervous system, which is driven by two fundamental elements which run in parallel. One is the sympathetic nervous system, which is what we call fight or flight, the stress response, where you flood the system with cortisol, adrenaline, and all those things, good things that we know are required to deliver performance. And the second part is the yin to that yang, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming element, which takes us back down when we've reached that peak. And those two should run in parallel with one dominant at any given time. And our whole methodology is built around measuring heart rate variability with a research-grade device, and that that maps that physiological response to the environment, the stress recovery response that is constantly ongoing in a human being. All right. Stress and recovery. All right. So what's interesting about this one is if you think about what we've known about great leaders, the ones who really succeed and achieve potential, there are a couple of things that we've said about them for 50, 60 years and documented in research. And one is this ability to stay calm in the midst of a crisis. So that ability to bring down the, or bring up the parasympathetic nervous system and not be in stress mode all the time, because that's how you get the best out of people without a doubt. Some are skilled at it and some are not skilled at it. But equally, we used to talk about years ago, a concept called stamina. Do you have the physical stamina to be able to take the strains that come inevitably with larger leadership. And this is what you're talking about. This heart rate variability should map directly to that stamina factor. Is that fair? Yeah, no, we one of our one of we have eight parameters of measurement. Okay. Two of them measure your capacity. They measure your ability in the morning to project. It's effectively an, a, a resilience measure. And one of those is one we call the initial recharge level. And that's your battery life. Everybody has their own physiological energy store and we can measure that 
And we can see relative to your ability how much you've recharged overnight. That's a very good predictor of your ability to bear stress in the latter part of the day. Okay. Um, So that's that's one core element. The other three three of the next parameters we have are our performance measures of stress. And then we just measure the stress that you both seek to generate performance with, but also your body will permit you to carry given your recovery profile. If you don't recover, your body just won't let you bear stress. And I think we all know that point where we hit a a mind block in the afternoon and we don't know what it is. It's your body taking control. And the third piece is recovery. And we have three measures of recovery and there are core elements of that. One is sleep, which is fundamental to recovery. And the second piece is daytime recovery. And that's the key area where we find executives do have bad habits. They are measurably poor at generating active recovery during the day. And I'll give you one shocking statistic. We've measured dozens of executives in the recent weeks, and 85% of them generate zero recovery measurably, physiologically, during mealtimes. So they are supposedly in a recovery mode, but their body thinks they are in, in the same environment as if they were going for a run, or shouting at, uh, uh, at the boss. It's, it's an extraordinary fact, and it's, it's because we have learned very bad self-management habits. As you're saying this, I feel like, okay, I need your assessment because I have developed, particularly over COVID, some really bad habits about my eating practices where I feel like, like most executives, I'm eating on the run. You're eating a five minutes at your desk, way too fast, not giving your body time to digest at all. And there's no moment to take your brain off of what you were doing and give you that moment of recovery. Am I on the right track here? You're spot on. If you went to an Olympic training camp, mealtimes are explicit recovery periods. You, you are not expected to turn up to the next training session carrying stress. So that period of an hour or two can be a period of meditation it can be a period of listening to music it could be socialization with people talk about anything other than training it can be uh, eating wholesome food it can be calling home these are all recovery activities what you're not supposed to be doing is sitting there obsessing about your next activity because all it will do is reduce your capacity to perform in that next activity okay but this is not the culture that we have at our desks we think in some way we are reducing future stress by introducing it into recovery space. Wrong. Wrong. Or that I have the capacity to handle it. That's just what's expected. So I keep going. And then without understanding the implications long term. Okay. Now, how do you counter executives who say, yes, but I don't have time? Well, our methodology is very easy. We, we make them wear a device for seven days, 24 hours a day, but it sits on their chest uh, and they don't, they don't need to do anything. Uh, the only other thing we ask them to do is to self-report in a diary every morning, which takes about three to four minutes, 27 questions, very quickly. And what okay. we generate from that is an enormous amount of data. But for the individual, the hard work is doing their work. We're not asking okay. them to spend hours right. completing questionnaires or anything. But if I go back to this notion of, like you were giving the example of mealtime at an Olympic tra- or a sports training camp is sacrosanct, and it's going to be for recovery, anything other than thinking about your next training session. What most executives will say is, I don't have time to take recovery in the course of the day. 
I don't have time to take meal time. How, how do you respond to that one? I mean, of course, the way they're managing their diaries, they don't have time. So you have to address your diary and you have to decide what the outcome you want from your diarized week should be. Scheduling matters. You know, for instance, people who have measurably poor initial recharge levels should be very serious about managing their key meetings into the mornings because it is probable they will underperform in the afternoons and until they've learned to recover at lunchtime and recharge their batteries. Okay. So the answer is you just got to reconstruct, and that's why working with people like you, Wanda, is so important because once you've got the data, it's empirical. I mean, one of the right. key things is when we, when the data we've gathered, executives are on average 30% inaccurate in self-assessing, self-reporting their physiological condition. Elite Olympians are about 4 or 5% inaccurate at worst. They're very, very good at it. It's a learned skill. So the, the, the message to an executive is if you think you can manage your optimal energy, you're probably almost certainly wrong and badly wrong. I mean, we have guys who say, I'm a 10 out of 10 for sleep. The answer is no. On our scale, you're a four. And you, you, you know, and some people say, no, I'm, I'm you know, I'm really, I mean, I'm, re I'm a really resilient person. And we say, well, we, you could be three times more resilient on our scores. Would you like to know what that feels like? Have you, you're, all you're doing is living in a, a subjective paradigm, which has been defined by your prior experience. Yeah. I believe that as I coach people, particularly at this moment in time where everybody's stress levels are way up because of the pandemic and the at home and all the demands that are coming accordingly and the lack of recovery. So many people have normal recovery th things that involve friends or going for a restaurant or a vacation or a downtime and it just isn't there. And so I'm seeing the stress levels already at near ceiling. And then all we need is one little tiny thing to go awry and there's no capacity left to dealing with it. So no, you, that's what you're saying. And yeah, that, that's what fatigue is. It's a physiological phenomenon. You reach the point whereby, and it accelerates. And we, we, we talk about the pressure performance curve in this context. If you put too much pressure on a human being, physiologically, their body starts to close down. It just refuses to take more stress. What that means is, and we'll all have seen that with colleagues, they stop responding in a normal way, mm -hmm. in a predictable way. You suddenly find extroverts becoming very introspective and unresponsive, or introverts becoming excessively exuberant. That is strange psychological behavior, but it's being driven by a physiological imbalance, which means that their body is not supporting their normal behavior any longer. Right. We see that all the time for a normally calm, even going executive who is suddenly yelling at people. And we're wondering, where is this coming from? And why are you yelling at me? And then spend an inordinate amount of time around the individual on the team trying to figure out what did I do and how do I fix this and my own stress levels coming up. So you see the knock-on effects and the implications for energy, time use, focus, everything we want to think about in terms of performance. Well, we, we, do, you know, we, we do a lot of correlations between our physiological scores and our IQ and EQ self-reporting. <laughs> and it's very interesting because for some people, Sleep duration is very closely correlated to create perceived creativity, their passion for their job, and their interpersonal relationships. Literally, if some, one individual sleeps below seven hours a day, you suddenly see a collapse 
in their self-reported passion for their job. It's not, a, it's, you know, it is not un, unrelated. The simple truth is that if you, if you know that you've only had six hours sleep and you have that profile and you have it within your powers to make an adjustment so that you don't lose that mojo, that you still retain your passion, but it requires a physiological adjustment. You can't just stick your head down and think you're going to make it through. Your body is fighting against you from that point. That's right. This reminds me, I had um, in the, about a year ago, I was working with a young guy who was in financial services and some deals on, as I'm sure everybody who's in financial services understands the pressure of those deals. And you're often putting in lots of hours and not sleeping very much. And he was sleeping four to five hours a night, something we know the human body cannot sustain, and then losing it with colleagues that he absolutely needed in order to execute on this deal. How many times have we seen this in this industry over and over again? But because he's young and fit, and the mantra is that I should be able to do it because that's what it takes, and I'm just going to gut through it and it'll be fine, he believed he was okay. And we kept having these conversations about, you know, the consequences of blowing up and understanding where people are. And, you know, yes, I know, I know, I know. But until I got him to sleep seven hours, he couldn't get the emotional side under control. As soon as he started sleeping seven hours, the entire problem went away in terms of blowing up with colleagues. For every profile that we prepare, we give people their average hours during the seven days. And then based on their overall stress, and their personal physiology will give them a recommendation for the hours of sleep that they need to sleep if they change nothing else. Shockingly, we find some people with three hours too little sleep every night. Now, the truth is that most people can't sleep 10 hours a night, but what it tells you is that they have to get it from recovery during the day. Right. And interestingly, there's a a 60-year-old executive we measured who'd been working in investment banking for nearly 40 years and he'd spent his lifetime being in the office between 6.30 and 7 in the morning. So he was structurally short of sleep, but he was a very efficient sleeper. We, we can measure that, uh, which meant that he could last to the lunchtime without any problem. But he had a, an incredible capacity to generate between two and four hours of recovery during the day. He had little habits, which he fitted into his working day, which meant that he could extend his working day to six, seven, eight in the evening and still be as good as he was first thing in the morning. Now, this is, this is an adjustment that would reflect a high-performing executive who found a way. What we're offering is a science that doesn't need 30 years of experience to find that way. You, know, you yeah. don't need that. That's when you talk about an elite athlete. We're now building an understanding of some of the shortcuts that will really deliver major enhancements of productivity and sustained resilience. Right. All right. So what I'm so excited about in this methodology is, A, we have a good bit of science about the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. We know it's knock-on effects on the body in a whole host of ways. We know the impact of some other things like food and sleep and recovery on your long-term well-being and on your sheer ability to perform and focus and generate and all those positive things that we're expecting of people. That's a known science. What we don't have in the executive world until recently is the ability to measure your, uniquely you, and to say, is four hours of sleep 
can you really survive on it or not? And if you, whatever it is you're doing, what else do you need to you add to your routine that's going to give you better recovery? Spot on. We can present empirical cause and effect. We can present people with consequences to choices that they've made in their life, which they can address. So it's it's very empowering. I mean, our whole philosophy is self-management first. You give smart people information and they'll make smart decisions. I mean, when we engage, they don't need five sessions to understand the implications of some of the data we present. Added to which, the other thing is, a lot of the information is very... (laughs) reaffirming a positive a lot of, there's always good news here you know it okay. may be that some people are very erratic in their habits but when they're good they're very good and our message is why not be very good every day if you knew how to do it right. and you had support to do it why not be good every day sounds marvelous to me so let me come back to the basic concept here just to make sure i can kind of put a nice little tidy bow around all of this The idea is measuring peak performance, meaning that balance between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and the hormonal time clock that evolves in all of our bodies, meaning I have to have some levels of stress in order to be at my best. How much stress will vary person to person, but I need some. And I need some periods where the stress hormones are declining in my body, something you call recovery, in order to be able to meet the next period of stress and stay at my performance at exactly the same optimal level. Fair enough? Yeah. All right. You say it better than me. (laughs) I've had the pleasure of listening to you about this one. All right. And then we can measure this with science. It is well known and well documented. In your particular case, it has to do with heart rate variability, which is a well-known indicator of the stress hormones and the decline of stress hormones in the body, the recovery. And then it's a matter of here's the data. Going to wear it over a seven-day period. Let's see how good you are at see at understanding where your body is and how good your recovery is and how much stress you can tolerate. And then we're going to put in habits that will keep you at your optimal level of performance to drive thinking power, decision-making, people management, creativity, excitement, and satisfaction with the job, and I'm betting even a sense of purpose at the end of the day. Absolutely. And unbounded optimism. (laughs) Well, if your body is exhausted, if you're feeling fatigued, you know that sense that your brain just, like you just can't push through anymore. There's nothing to push through to. I mean, you can gut it out, but you're not at your best. And that sense of fatigue, I think, is important. And what I, what I am intrigued by, of course, I would say this, is there's a physiological component. There's an emotional component to that level of fatigue. And all that we've done is design a process whereby the EQ and IQ measures that you are so familiar with now have parameters to measure against. And so we can see where the relationships are and we can see what's driving. Am I anxious because I'm not sleeping a lot or am I not sleeping a lot because I'm anxious? These sorts of questions are fundamental. And at the moment, there is a bias in elite executive performance towards psychology. And that's not that I, you know, and, I, and there's a lot of enormously powerful psychological content that is necessary to deliver peak performance, but sometimes it's physiological. And that's, that's about yeah. 20%, I suspect, of an executive I, yeah. performance, and it's completely unmanaged, and companies don't know about it. They don't understand it. 
And this, right. this, is, this is the other area that we're very focused on. I would bet of every coaching assignment I've had in the last four years, that was, you know, we, Wanda, we need you to work with this person because we have a problem here, that kind of coaching assignment, or we need a development thing here. I should put it in the positive way. At the end of the day, there's something going wrong in the stress responses that's generating a behavior that isn't effective. Every one of those individuals, when they are calm, can think through what to do and handle it. But the moment they get not calm, man, there's chaos. So I'm going to bet for some people, it's more than 20%. I bet it's 30 or 40% of the equation. You, you could be right. I'll give, you, I'll give you one interesting bit of data point. There was a study by the University of Southern California about 10 years ago, which looked at the differential in stress responses between men and women. And the yes. stressor was actually putting your hand in a freezing glass of water and then right. making you play a betting game. Right. The interesting thing is that the responses were fundamentally different. Men, when stressed, will have an, have an appetite for up to 50% more risk. Right? They, they'll take more risky decisions when stressed. Women, 10% or less risk. They are less, have less appetite for risk. Now, imagine that culturally in, in a room full of executives where there is one gender dominant. If you are in a boardroom where there are mostly men and stressed decisions coming on, what's happening? What's happening is the men in the room are saying, let's make a decision. Their adrenaline's rising, push, push, push. And the women in the room are saying, hold on a minute, I need more evidence, let's think this through. Now, what I always say to male executives in this context is, if you're in the majority, say, time out, let's start with the female perspective. The flip side, in a female-dominated environment, you know, you can imagine those in some, in some, in some corporate settings, the pressure comes on a, a dominant group of women will probably say, let's talk this through. Maybe we'll, let's have another meeting. Let's defer the decision. Whereas the men in the room are looking for a decision there and then. The smart thing to do then is to re- rebalance and challenge the bias. Right. Stress plays funny games on human beings. And we need to right. understand that diversity is also a physiological issue. Right. Absolutely. And and I have to say this because I agree with you on that in general, but for every group of women, I'm going to have a range of responses to stress and risk-taking. And for every group of men, I'm going to have a range and the responses. So it's not that all one or the other. Um, And I have to link this to um, an assessment that I am particularly fond of. So we do a lot of assessments and a lot of data around personal psychology, around your profile, around how people perceive you. We've got great techniques on that, but we don't have great techniques to add the physiology, at least not yet. But let me go back to the assessment. Hogan, one of the assessments that I particularly like to use with executives that has to do with your personality profile and how you show up as leader, what drives you, how you show up. And your derailers. If anything is going to get you in trouble, this is the set that will get you in trouble. And what we know about those is they don't come out every day or you wouldn't be seeing me. You wouldn't be counting the executive pool. But they do come out when stress levels increase. And it's at that moment that we find people doing things they would not naturally do, to your earlier point. Being overly excited and they're more, therefore more volatile, being more reserved, not available to people, being more risk-taking, being less risk-taking. I mean, there's a whole range of things that happen, and there's where, right there, is where it's going on. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that, because 
Uh, winding back to your question about what elite athletes do, one of the fundamental points of elite athlete management is they use digital tools to review their data aggressively. They have a single repository of all of their physiological and emotional data. It's all in one place, and their team work on it. Now, that's what we've mirrored in PQ. We have what we call the 3Q Total Performance Platform, which is a digital platform which has been taken from an elite sports profiling organization. It's, it's leading, it's used for your Olympic athletes over in the States, a lot of your pro sports teams and your US and the military as well. And what we do is we take all our PQ data and hold it in there, but we also have the capacity to take a feed from a Hogan or the other psychometrics so that you can start to see the linkages between the derailers and our physiological parameters. Now that is very exciting because up until now, the challenge with Hogan is that it sits in a drawer until it gets taken out again. What we're trying to encourage executives to do is to self-report daily, right. right, through their working working life, and they could self-report against their Hogan derailers right. if they wanted to, and work on that. Or it could be some 360 feedback. We can customize all of that. But that, if you ask me, the difference between an executive today and an elite athlete, an elite athlete has these tools, and by goodness, it's made a difference. Whereas elite executives have a panoply of resources, but they're scattered. There isn't a focal point. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's no seeing really the connections. Important. Yeah. I think this um, grounding into the physiology is something that's going to help all of us kind of tie the pieces together. At least that's what I'm enthusiastic about. We'll see as time emerges. Okay, Andrew, this is a perfect place to take a break. But I note two things. One is I really want to talk about the implications of this for managing a team and keeping a team at peak performance because there's huge implications there for leaders. But you also teased me with an executive who's learned tricks to get two hours of recovery in the day. And I want to know what those tricks are for him. So we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll pick up with those two. My guest today is Andrew McDonald. Andrew is with um, the Hollywell Partnership, but also with PQ Limited. And the website, if you'd like to know more about this, is pq-perform.com. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum. Helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Andrew McDonald. We have been talking about PQ, performance, peak performance or performance quotient. Um, the website, if you want to know more, is pq-perform.com. And the notion is that we have great measures of IQ, we have great measures of EQ, but we're missing the measures of the physiology of performance that's going to have all of us performing at our peak as executives for longer periods of time in the day. That peak performance is driven by the balance between the parasympathetic nervous system, the stress levels, a little bit of it, but not too much, in balance with the parasympathetic, which is the recovery time where the stress levels drop, stress hormones drop. It's measurable, and it's measurable through a thing called heart rate variability, all well-known science. The nice thing about this is that suddenly now as an executive, you can look at your stress levels. You can look at how much your body tolerates. You can look at your recovery period. You can look at the factors that drive recovery. And you can look at the habits that are going to make you more effective for hours in the day, for all the hours in the day, so that you don't hit that wall in the afternoon, for example. And this is how we get stronger performance, greater enthusiasm and passion, increased creativity, good thinking and decision-making, appropriate risk-taking, You name it, it all comes from now adding this notion of performance quotient, PQ, to the mix of everything else that we're talking about. Now, two things I just said I got really excited about. One is imagine as a leader of a team, if you actually had the data on your team members, and forgive me about any health-related requirements and data protection privacy for just a moment, but if I knew of my team who was at their Um, upper limit on stress and what it took for them to recover, I'd be much better manager for them because I know where to push, where to back off, what to encourage. Whereas someone else on the other side might have a very different profile and a different set of patterns and I'd have a better way of dealing with them. So I think there's huge implications for the team and how well the team can function if we add this additional piece of information. But before I go there, 
Andrew, you give this lovely example of an executive who was sleeping, uh, I think, six hours a night, so had been in the industry for 40-some years, working ridiculous hours like so many people, and yet had managed in the middle of the day to find two hours of recovery so that by the end of the day, he was at the same performance level he was in the morning. And none of these fit everybody, but what was he doing? Okay. He was doing things that generated recovery for him. Yeah. That's the important thing. And I'll I'll extend on that in a second. But, uh, you know, the, the starting point is, just to give you an image, if you knock on Roger Federer's door during the week and he's lying on a sun lounger, he's at work, right? He's just in recovery mode. And same with Tom Brady before the Super Bowl. He is going to be working very hard on his recovery so that he peaks when the, when the game starts on Sunday. What this executive was doing, was very good at identifying, was that mid-morning he liked to go and have a quiet coffee on his own, flick through a magazine or whatever, catch up. He'd zone out and maybe turn the radio on and listen to some sport for 20 minutes. One, one very good thing he enjoyed doing, he liked to call his partner, you know, his wife. He liked to call her and have a chat about the family. These things are all recovery activities, potentially. I mean, we, we measured a group of executives over two weeks for a period, and we got them self-reporting, and most executives overestimated the stress factor of being interacting with their family by 25%. No, being with your family is mostly a recovery activity. Being with people who love you and you love is really good for you. But if you take stress into that environment from your previous activity, you don't manage boundaries, that recovery effect is destroyed. We can see that as well with meditation. If you take stress into meditation, it doesn't deliver a recovery effect. But if you prepare for that recovery as seriously as you would prepare for going and playing a game of tennis, my goodness, the benefit becomes multiple. So this executive was, you know, we've measured recovery activity in gardening, walking the dog. What we don't measure is any recovery in taking exercise. Recovery is a stress act. Exercise is a stress activity by definition. And there are a lot of particularly middle-aged competitive executives who think that killing yourself on a Saturday is in some way going to purge the pain of the previous week. Well, if it's going to generate more stress on your body and what your body needs is recovery, it generates more problems the following week. Ha ha ha. So does that mean that most of those people that tell me their main way of dealing with stress is to go for a run are kidding themselves? It depends when they do it. If you do okay. it too late in the day, your metabolic system can't calm and it'll, it'll carry stress into your sleep. If you do it inconsistently, you don't generate a proper exercise effect. So your fitness will not be enhanced. It's a combination. We don't, I mean, most executives we measure under exercise, but it's about finding the time. I'll tell you a, an interesting story. There was a female executive we measured who in her previous employment really enjoyed going for a run at about 11.30 in the morning. She found it was very good. Um, that's ideal time. The first thing in the morning or mid-morning is a really good time to exercise because it allows you to recover enough to sleep well. But when she went to a new employer, her manager said, we don't do that at this firm. You have to do it in your own time after you've completed work. So she was running in the evening. The consequence was her metabolism, which is pretty highly finely tuned, 
blew through the roof and she wasn't calming down until past midnight. She was sleeping badly, her stress level, her accumulated stress in the morning was high and her performance was affected. So we have to be very attuned to what we are doing. And finally, on this, you're right, in a, and we'll come on to this in the teams, what she did was take that information back to her manager. She felt validated. She knew it wasn't good for her. She then had empirical evidence to say, why would you make me do this when it's not helping me perform? It was a very good conversation, a very challenging conversation to a very controlling manager. Did she win? She, uh, she negotiated something which was a compromise as okay. far as he was prepared to go. Okay, she got all to right. a better place. Right, right. Something, something gives there. I like that. I like the, and I think this is why so many people are excited about neuroscience. But the thing about neuroscience that's most interesting to me, and I think is most useful for us leading organizations and leading teams, is exactly what we're talking about right here. The parasympathetic and sympathetic responses, the stress hormones, the recovery time, because those are the things that directly impact our work life, our private life as well, our performance, our satisfaction, all those factors. This is the part from neuroscience I think is fascinating. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we've already started to, to, to work at the margins of trying to correlate our, our, our parameters against some neurological stimuli. This is, this is interesting because... Of course, our brain is an organ. I mean, sometimes the brain can burn up to 30, 40% of our calorific intake. We're really, it's, it's, like, it's like having the central heating on. It's a big old organ and it, we really work it. And the consequence of that is pretty serious. Yeah. You know? But you need to look after it as you look after your heart. All right. Same Fair thing. enough. Fair enough. All right. Good. Okay. So let's shift then and talk about teams. So have you worked with a team in the executive world and sort of seen, you know, tell us about that. Yeah, look, we measured one team. In the UK, there's a government organization very involved with the COVID response. And we measured a group of senior executives from that organization, part of their most senior management team, right at the front edge. And we measured them averaging 15 hours of physiological stress a day, averaging for seven days, that included weekends, okay? So you do the numbers on that. They were generating less than an hour's recovery to compensate during the daytime for that. Now, clearly they were in a very stressed environment and there was, a, there was an output required in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an unprecedented crisis. But we did go back to their leadership team and say, this is an ESG issue. You have values and cultures that are expressed on your website and to your employees. It's unsustainable without intervention to present to them that this is our culture, that this right. is what you're expected to do. And this is where management becomes leadership. You have to take ownership of the culture you create. And you can validate it by the output requirement, but ultimately you have to take responsibility for the input that is required to deliver that output. Mm -hmm. And up until now, no organization has taken seriously the physiological input that is required to generate their metric output. And we're saying that is unsustainable. There is no point in global investment banks provisioning quarterly four or five billion dollars of compensation expenses and investing so little in understanding and supporting the performance, physiological performance of people they're demanding to generate the output. Right. It's because we believe so much in the gutted through principle. 
as in my best leaders are the ones who can gut it out, as opposed to my best leaders are the ones who understand what peak performance is about and how to get it for themselves and their teams. Yeah, and that's and the shift. You're re- yes, and, and interestingly, in elite sport, they've done some interesting work. Yeah, I'm, I'm a parent of a, of a, of a, of a national-level swimmer, and she, I, you know, I have to get up at 4.30 in the morning three days a week, um, normally, not in lockdown now in the UK. But what you find is that that makes it very difficult to function some of the time. And I felt that physiologically. But what I heard from elite coaches is that if you can't get up as a swimmer at 4.30 in the morning to train, you'll never become an Olympic swimmer because that's the, that's the, the get-over line. Now, you can imagine the corporate lawyers and investment bankers who are required to, to make decisions at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. If they can't work at that time, they can't do the job. Now, the question you've got to ask is, if you create a slightly more focused physiological environment, could you get more people with broader talent to be able to deliver to that team? Just by having the cutoff simply where you're not great at two in the morning, if we say, well, let's understand why you're not great at two in the morning, can we structure your working environment so this week when we need you to be great at two in the morning, we can get you there. And... We have a model for that. You know, elite athletes do this with jet lag all the time. Whereas elite executives usually <laughs> self-medicate jet lag with a couple of glasses of Merlot and a hope that a film will send them to sleep. Well, you know, we can do better. <laughs> oh, and add on the several cups of coffee when you arrive at wherever it is you're going. And we've got the system in absolute chaos. I get that. All right, Andrew, I'm now convinced I need to have you come follow me around for a couple of months and give me advice about how to get to my peak performance because I recognize all of these issues. All right, so let's say we have this data um, now, and I know that my recovery time is not as good as it needs to be. I can see it. I've got it. And let's say I am beginning to, with the help of a a coach or a self-reported metric on, let's say, emotional intelligence, and beginning to map some of the behaviors in my leadership that are not ideal, existing right alongside the times when I'm not having the recovery I need. So let's say I sort of see that this problem is having a bigger issue and I need to do something about it. Where do I begin to understand what's going to help me recovery? Do you have any tricks or tips there? I, I think there's a, there's a two-step process here. The first step is just engage rationally with the data. You, know, okay. you need to create distance from the desk data. Rather than feeling embarrassed or feeling that you have to validate or explain it away, just say, it is what it is. It's telling me something. It is impairing performance, which could be highly impactful uh, or or where the improvement could be highly impactful. How do I want to get there? So you've got to get yourself into a coachable mindset. Am I prepared to work with this data to get to find the solution? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, frankly, choose the avenue of coaching or support that works for you. So you need to trust whoever it is that you work with as a third party or simply yourself, if that's who you trust best, but do it being committed to empiricism. Don't do it thinking impatiently, I'm going to do this for a week and if it doesn't make a difference, then I'm done. These things are incremental. It's about committing to a change that will take time. 
But the end game is a massive margin of productivity opportunity. The potential for change is massive if you do, if you do address step right. by step. But that would be my recommendation. Yeah, you, we keep emphasizing the impact on performance and on creativity, but I don't want to underestimate the importance of all of this unsatisfaction, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of well-being, the sense of passion with the job. And I talk to so many people who aren't sure they can keep going. I think that it comes down to not managing the physiology in a way that's leading to peak performance and therefore to um, passion and commitment. Okay. You're right, Wanda. We, we, we're, you know, if you want to sustain your career, as you get older, there are some choices there. And we can show you the impact of alcohol, for instance, on the recovery profile of executives. It's catastrophic in some cases um, and works counter to everything they're trying to achieve. Now, there are choices that we all face as we get older. And, and if we want to sustain a peak and compete with younger people who have physiological advantage, then rather like the Tom Brady's of this world, you have to make some decisions. Okay. That puts a strong point on it. Um, I'm going to come back around to something, too, that I hear so much from the millennials and now increasingly from Gen Z. And I think this is relevant to exactly this point. I think they're much more attuned to the physiology and the impact of the physiology. And they want managers to care about them as whole human beings, which means their interest outside of work their passions and curiosities, the life experiences they're looking to have, the work experiences they're looking to have, the whole package, not adjust the output of their work. And this kind of language at looking what gives each individual recovery and puts them at their peak performance, I think is absolutely at the heart and soul of what they're asking for from their managers. Well, look, I think, I think if we can move to a world where organizations support and develop managers who become coaches and give them the tools and the resources and the digital resources to make that happen, then the effect on the, and the motivatory effect on the executive that's being managed will be massive because they're being treated as an individual. Can you imagine the difference? That's incredible. It's incredible. Well, sadly, Andrew, we're out of time. I have a feeling we could talk for another three hours about this one. My guest today is Andrew McDonald. The company is PQ Limited, and the website is pq-perform.com. You can also find out more about Andrew at his other consultancy, which is the Hollywell Partnership Limited. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Wanda, you're a great host. It's lovely to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. If you'd like to know more about this and other ways to stretch yourself, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.